2006, January 31st, Astronomy 162. Today's lecture is Lecture 19, Extreme Stars, White Dwarfs, and Neutron Stars, to begin in just a moment. Okay, now we're on, now we're on the air. Today we're going to ask the question, what happens to those remnant cores that we've been sort of sweeping under the rug in our discussion of the ends of stellar evolution? We talked about low-mass stellar evolution. We talked about core envelope separation and how the carbon-oxygen core continued to collapse its merry way until it finally, electron degeneracy kicks in and it becomes a white dwarf and the envelope puffs off as a planetary nebula. We saw oxygen, neon, magnesium white dwarfs as the end point of the evolution of about a four to eight solar mass star. And yesterday we saw that a very massive star, eight to a bunch, has a, a very catastrophic core collapse. The core bounce it causes an explosion which rips the atmosphere, rips the envelope of the star away, seeding the interstellar medium with heavy metals from all the nucleos, explosive nucleosynthesis going on, and leaves behind that collapsing iron core. What happens to that core? What becomes of those remnants of stars? And that's the topic of today's lecture on extreme stars, white dwarfs and neutron stars. The key ideas today are going to be to introduce two extreme forms of star, white dwarfs and neutron stars. White dwarfs are going to turn out to be the remnant of a low-mass star. It's the leftover core that goes behind after the envelope's been blown away. It's going to be turn out to be an object which is supported against gravity by electron degeneracy pressure. It's actually in a form of hydrostatic equilibrium, but with a very different gas law. And we're going to see what the consequences of that are in this lecture. There's also going to turn out to be a maximum mass for a white dwarf. It's about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. And this has got a special name. It's called the Chandrasekhar mass. It's named after a scientist, Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who discovered the necessary relationships to it derive the fact that white dwarfs cannot be any mass. They're always going to be 1.4 solar masses or below. And we'll see a little bit about what the implications of that maximum mass are for understanding these objects. We're then going to spend the other half of the class introducing objects called neutron stars. The neutron star is the remnant of a massive star. How massive, of course, we'll say in just a bit. But it's usually it's left over, it's what's left over after a supernova explosion of the type that I described yesterday. It's supported by a new form of pressure now called neutron degeneracy pressure. As its name implies, a neutron star is nearly made of pure neutrons. And we'll see what the consequences of that are and some of the oddities of the structure of these objects. We actually observe neutron stars. They have an interesting manifestation when they're very young in an object called a pulsar. A pulsar is a rapidly spinning magnetized neutron star. And they turn out to be, as we'll see in a moment, young neutron stars. Old neutron stars should spin down and no longer be visible as pulsars, with a few interesting exceptions that won't be important to this class. So today we're going to look at, if you will, the leftovers in the stellar graveyard, white dwarfs and neutron stars. It's not the end of the story, but they're the two that we can actually get direct observations of and have very interesting and very different properties. They finish up, if you will, most of the story of stellar evolution that we spent the last week or so discussing. So as I said before at the beginning of class, today's class is going to be asking and answering a single question. What happens to those cores of dead stars when we no longer have nuclear fusion going on, when you've removed your envelope, either gently as a planetary nebula or spectacularly and explosively in a supernova? The answer is that those cores will continue to collapse under gravity because their internal pressure is insufficient to hold them up against gravity. 
Gravity wins, the star will begin to collapse. As it collapses, it heats it and compresses. The problem is, as you begin to push matter closer and closer together, other rules start to come into play. In particular, throughout most of the star's life, from the point that it was a collapsing core of a molecular cloud through most of its nuclear burning lifetime, stars behave according to the ideal gas law. The pressure is proportional to temperature. Now, there are nuances associated with that that aren't important to us, but to a first approximation, that's always the case. If I compress a gas and make it denser, it heats up. So the pressure is proportional to temperature. Any release of pressure drops the temperature. Any increase in pressure increases the temperature. That's the basis of the hydrostatic thermostat that allows stars to prevent themselves from exploding as a hydrogen bomb, even though they have tremendous fusion in their cores. But what happens if I change the rules? And where the rules change is the rules change at very, very high densities. When matter is compressed to where things are coming very, very close to each other. These new pressure laws have a different relationship with temperature. The pressure now only depends upon the density, not on the temperature. So if I have a material with this particular gas law in, in play, if I double the temperature, the pressure doesn't change at all. The pressure becomes independent of temperature. When that happens, the whole hydrostatic equilibrium pressure-gravity balance thing changes completely. And I will reach a point where the density will rise to the point that the pressure will increase to where it balances gravity. But now as the object cools off, that doesn't change the pressure anymore. It was the fact that pressure dropped when the star cooled that led to the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. But that's only in the context of an ideal gas law. If I change the gas law, I change that behavior, and I change it, as it turns out, in such a way to actually stabilize the star. Now, that will only be true if one of these pressure forms, forms can come into play. And we're going to see those two different forms of pressure, electron and neutron degeneracy, in just a moment. But if, there is, if that pressure is insufficient, then we believe that the collapse will continue, and it will just simply continue forever until the star basically falls in upon itself completely. That type of object is called a black hole. It basically collapses to zero radius and infinite density. We're not going to talk about black holes today. That's the topic of tomorrow's lecture. So at high density, we get these things called degenerate gas laws. Now, the first form of degenerate gas law I get occurs when I try to pack lots and lots of electrons together. When I start packing electrons together, I start having to worry about the quantum nature of matter. The fact that those little electrons, which we, you know, I don't know about you, but I have this little cartoon in my head of electrons as being little negatively charged BBs running around. We think of them as little solid particles sort of bouncing around in a box. But in reality, at the quantum world, those electrons are actually kind of fuzzy. They're actually a mixture between wave and particle in that sort of ghostly quantum mechanical way matter actually behaves at microscopic scales. Electrons follow very specific rules for how they pack together. Some of those rules are embodied in the chemical properties of all the elements of the periodic table over there. But what we're going to be concerned with is what happens when you try to pack free electrons together. If you pack them into a tiny volume, the first thing the electrons do is they fill all the lowest energy states. And there's a rule for electrons. It's called the Pauli exclusion principle. It states that once an electron occupies a low energy state, it's the only electron allowed to be in that state. Any other electron comes by, it must occupy another energy state that's unoccupied. 
And since the low energy states get occupied first, the next available states are the high energy states. After that, you get those are occupied the next highest energy state and so forth. Now remember that pressure was a kind of a measurement of how fast the particles are bouncing off of things, just like temperature. Now, because the energy the particles have is dictated by what the available quantum states are, their energy gets dictated by something other than thermal properties. An analogy. Okay, a simple analogy will explain how a degenerate pressure works. The term degeneracy means that you basically have fixed states and you begin to fill them. Unfortunately, the word degenerate means something else in the English language, but roughly the same. Take a room on a test day. Okay? On this test day, we've, this room has a capacity of about 196 people. There are 168 people, according to the roster I downloaded yesterday. So that means there are more seats than there are butts, and everyone coming in can occupy a seat. Now, imagine for the moment that the workmen come in here and find out that one-third of the seats in this room are all defective and they block them off and no one can sit in them because you'll fall through them and hurt yourself and the university doesn't want to get sued. You know the lawyers really run the university at this point, so that's going to be obeyed. Now all of a sudden I have fewer seats than I have people and people crowd in here on Friday. What's going to happen? The first people who come in are going to get the seats. What happens? Well, everyone does the same thing. They occupy the back seats first and then you have to start moving down to the seats closer and closer to the front. So what happens if I've got 150 seats clear and 168 students? Then once I've filled those 150 seats, those remaining 18 students who show up for the exam have nowhere to sit. Now imagine that what they have to do is that there's stairs. They can't sit on the stairs, so they have to kind of walk around. They have to be in a higher energy state. They're not sitting down and relaxed. Now... It turns out that people in the other 162 class decide they want to take my test. So even more students try to pack in the room. What's going to happen? Well, all the seats are full, all the aisles are full, they're sitting on the front tables, and the next people who come in have no choice but to like pile up around the back. So as you fill the lowest energy states, you have only the high energy states left. The pressure in this room would go way up. Pretty soon, you'd pack so many people in here, they're starting to bounce off each other. They have no choice but to bounce off each other because there's nowhere to sit. That makes a kind of pressure. Pretty soon, people are bouncing off so much, the door opens and people blast out of the room because they bounce out off each other. It's going to be like a gigantic mosh pit in here, except all these folks sitting down in the seats who are entertained by all this chaos going on around them. Now, in principle, there's no difference between you in the seat and the, and the people that came in late. So if the system has all the seats filled, pretty soon the room becomes degenerate. Okay, the, a pressure begins to generate itself because there's nowhere for the electrons to sit. So that's how a degenerate pressure works. In a normal gas, there are tons of states that the electrons can go into. They're just all over the place. And they can do whatever they want to. It behaves like a perfect gas law. But when I begin to compress to very high compression, all of a sudden, all the seats become occupied. All of the thermal states, the energy states become occupied. The low temperature states are occupied. First, the high energy states are next, the highest energy states after that. So as I pack more and more electrons into the highly compressed state, they have no other choice but to be whipping around really fast because they can't be lower energy. And as they bounce off each other, they make a form of pressure that's utterly irrelevant to what the temperature is. That's called a degeneracy pressure.
So high energy equals high pressure. I suddenly generate a pressure that's totally independent of temperature. This is really important. This degenerate gas creates a pressure that doesn't matter if the, if the object cools off, its pressure remains exactly the same because its pressure is dictated by its density and the number of available states, not the mean speeds of things in a thermal sense. And so as the object cools, its pressure remains the same. And so the whole Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism is completely shut down. Now the object can cool, but if it maintains pressure equilibrium with gravity, the fact that its temperature drops by a factor of two, its pressure is still the same, so the pressure-gravity balance isn't altered. And so if the degeneracy pressure is sufficient to hold off gravity, the object will stabilize. It will achieve hydrostatic equilibrium, but now the pressure is provided by this degenerate gas. Compression does not lead to heating. That's the key. And so the thing just cools off. It loses energy, but it doesn't lose pressure, so it never destabilizes, and pressure and gravity reach an essentially eternal detente. They come into perfect balance, and it's really hard to kick it out. So this allows the existence of something we haven't seen yet, cold objects in hydrostatic equilibrium. Now, do we see physical examples of degenerate gases? Yeah, actually, it turns out steel is an example of a degenerate material. It's a highly conductive metal in which the electrons are running around. They actually form a form of pressure. Steel is actually partially supported, if you will, in its high-density state by a form of degeneracy pressure. We also see degeneracy pressure kick in in other places in the universe. Objects like Jupiter, white um, brown dwarf stars, as they begin to collapse, you would think eventually they're going to reach 10 million degrees Kelvin because as you compress your heat. But actually what happens is before they get to 10 million Kelvin, their cores become degenerate and the whole rules change and so they never reach fusion temperature. So degenerate gases are really important to us. Okay, back to the story. White dwarfs are the cores that we saw left behind from stars that were more massive than eight times the mass of the sun. Turns out that electron degeneracy pressure works as a pressure force to stop the collapse of these cores as they fall down. If the mass was less than about four times the mass of the sun at the birth of that star, it would basically leave behind a carbon-oxygen core. That carbon-oxygen core collapses until electron degeneracy pressure rises to the point that it exactly balances gravity. The system stabilizes, and we call that object a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. If the mass is between four and eight times the mass of the sun, the core of the star can go all the way through carbon burning. Carbon fusion produces large amounts of oxygen, neon, and magnesium. That oxygen, neon, magnesium core collapses, but it never reaches the temperature to ignite neon or oxygen fusion. The envelope separates. The oxygen neon magnesium core collapses until degeneracy pressure kicks in and reaches the point that it can balance gravity and it stabilizes as a hot oxygen neon magnesium white dwarf. So if I look around the universe and I see carbon oxygen white dwarfs, I know those used to be the cores of stars between about less than about four times the mass of the sun, four to eight. Carbon, oxygen, neon, magnesium white dwarfs probably came from somewhat more massive stars, from four to eight solar mass stars. Now it's about, we don't know the exact lines, I've drawn this as round numbers because that's a, where our approximate knowledge of this goes. The properties of these things, if we look at the properties that come out of predictions of stellar evolution theory and models and computers, is the masses of these all have a mass of less than 1.4 times the mass of the sun. To achieve the density where, where, where electron degeneracy pressure can hold off gravity, you have to be roughly the size of the Earth, about 0.02 of the radius of the Sun. 
this point, we just throw up our hands and use Earth radii. The density of a material which achieves degeneracy pressure capable of holding off gravity is between 100,000 and a million grams per cc. If you take the mass, imagine taking the mass of the sun, which is approximately, in round numbers, one million times the mass of the Earth, but squeeze it into a volume the size of the Earth. Well, since the force of gravity, the acceleration due to gravity, which gives me my weight, is simply g times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared, then what I get is an object the size of the Earth, but a million times more massive, I have a million times my weight on the Earth if I was standing on the surface of a white dwarf star. Well, if I suddenly had my mass go, mass, my weight, excuse me, I still, my mass is still, you know, I don't know, 180 kilos or whatever, no, 100, not 180 kilos, no. My mass is still 80 kilos or whatever it is. My weight in that round numbers is about 160 pounds, according to the bathroom scale. If I stood on the surface of a white dwarf, it would be 160 million pounds. Needless to say, the human skeleton can't stand that. I would basically be squashed into a thin smear of people jelly approximately over the surface of the star. So it's a very, very strong gravity. Another way of quantifying that gravity is how fast would I have to fire rocket engines to escape from the surface of a white dwarf? The answer is about 2% the speed of light. This is far beyond the capacity of any rockets I can even imagine, much less rockets made of materials that can stand up under these kinds of heavy gravitational fields. So a white dwarf star is a very, very compact, very, very dense object. The old saw is that a teaspoonful of the material would weigh roughly the amount of a locomotive or so. It's a very high density, very high gravity on the surface. Now, we see them because they are hot. Objects shine because they are hot and space is cold. Why do white dwarfs shine? Why do we see these things occupying the white dwarf sequence on the HR diagram? Because they still have residual heat. Remember, they formed in a core that was nearly 100, 200, 300 million degrees Kelvin. It's going to lose that heat over time because it's hot and space is cold. So white dwarfs shine because of residual heat that they possess. There's no nuclear fusion. There's no Kelvin-Helmholtz contraction because they're not contracting. They're held up by degenerate electron pressure. So they shine simply because they're hot. Because they're really tiny, they take a very, very long time to cool. So even though they may have formed a billion years ago, they're still hot a billion years later. Just like a, a briquette of charcoal in a, in a charcoal grill, after you've burned up the charcoal, that briquette's still hot. It takes a long time to cool off once it's no longer getting energy by oxidizing chemistry. Same is true of a white dwarf. They're still stars. They're still hot points of light, but they're really tiny, low luminosity, and really hot. But because they have no source of energy to replace that lost heat, they simply cool off over time. They shine by residual light. Here's actually the first white dwarf discovered. This is the big bright star you see in the middle of this frame here is Sirius, the dog star, the brightest star in the winter sky. If you looked next to Sirius with a telescope, this is a beautiful picture taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. These streaks here are basically reflections off of the structure of the telescope. The star is so bright you're seeing all the internal reflections in the telescope. And this little tiny bit here is a white dwarf star called Sirius B. They orbit each other in a, as a bi visual binary pair. We can measure the mass of Sirius B with these observations with the Hubble Space Telescope. We can actually measure the luminosity of Sirius B. Since I know its temperature and I know its luminosity, it's, I know its radius, because from the luminosity-radius-temperature relationship. If I then make a model of that, 
This is now a scale model of Sirius B. Sirius B has a radius of about 5,800 kilometers. Kepler's law from the binary tells us it has about the mass of the sun. The escape speed for that combination is about 2% the speed of light. We now see Sirius B, basically a billiard ball star. It's a hot, degenerate, carbon-oxygen white dwarf in scale to the Earth. I've tweaked the scales so these things are approximately correct. This is what we would see if we were near a white dwarf like Sirius B. The sun someday is going to turn into a white dwarf. At the end of its evolution, it will become a white dwarf of approximately 0 0.55, 0 0.6 times the mass of the sun. It will lose about 40 to 50% of its mass when it sloughs off its envelope, and its collapsing carbon-oxygen core will contain about half its current mass in round numbers. A half-solar mass white dwarf will actually be a little bit bigger because degeneracy pressure can actually come into play a little bit sooner and stop the collapse. If the white dwarf gets heavier, it will actually get smaller because you have to get stronger degeneracy pressure to hold off the gravity of that mass, and so it stabilizes at a smaller size. If the sun turns into a white dwarf, it, there's still 0.6 solar masses worth of stuff at the center of the solar system, so the planets would all continue to orbit the sun slightly further away because it's now 0.6 instead of one solar mass. So look carefully at this picture. This is the future of the sun. Uh, a little bit sm different mass, but this is what the sun will look like in about five or six billion years. A tiny glowing ember of what it used to be. Yes, ma'am? That's the amount of time it can last in a combination of height. Okay, the question was, the sun, lifetime of the sun is about 12 billion years. That's the amount of time that lasts when it can tap nuclear fusion and use various hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium to dictate its, its, its evolution. At the end of that time, it blows off its envelope and becomes a white dwarf, and the evolution essentially stops, except for this long process of the cooling of the white dwarf remnant. So when we talk about the 12 billion years, that means everything up through where all the changes occur, then after 12 billion years, all that happens is, well, not much. You get a white dwarf that just cools. And the evolution becomes boring forever. Well, more or less forever, as we'll see later in the class. Now, there's a maximum mass for a white dwarf. We talked a little bit about the fact that electron degeneracy has got to come into pressure balance. This turns out to dictate a mass-radius relationship for white dwarfs. It works in the direction that the larger the mass, the higher the pressure I need to stabilize, and that stabilization occurs at a smaller, more compact radius, higher density. So high-mass white dwarfs tend to be smaller. This was discovered by a man named Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who said, well, what happens if I keep increasing the mass? Eventually, what you find is that there is a maximum mass for a white dwarf above which electron degeneracy pressure can no longer stabilize gravity because gravity is always just a little bit stronger than the electron degeneracy pressure. He was able to compute this in the 1930s as about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. This was actually a tremendous achievement for the time. Chandrasekhar came from India. He was on his way to Cambridge, England, where he studied with the great Arthur Eddington at Cambridge. And did this calculation at a time when no one understood why objects like Sirius B should exist at all. It was Chandrasekhar who applied the then brand new laws of quantum mechanics to the understanding of stellar hydrodynamics and discovered the white dwarf. And this is why Chandrasekhar is now famous. He won the Nobel Prize a few years before his death for especially this work on gravitation and stars. He was actually not believed for a very long time. A combination of 
um, good old-fashioned scientific conservatism regarding this newfangled quantum mechanics, and unfortunately, perhaps a little bit of old-fashioned British colonial racism, who is this Indian guy being smarter than us. There's a lot of stories like that in science, sadly. The 1.4 solar mass limit is now called the Chandrasekhar mass. It basically is the maximum mass that a white dwarf can have before neutron, electron degeneracy pressure is no longer sufficient to hold off gravity. Above 1.4, say 1.5, 1.6 solar masses, no matter how much the white dwarf collapses, the electron degeneracy pressure will always be too little to balance gravity and the thing will simply continue to collapse. So it can no longer find a stable equilibrium. Now, what happens to a white dwarf? What is the subsequent evolution of a white dwarf? We pretty much say that a star's evolution ends when it gets rid of its envelope. And then we discuss the evolution of the remnant. So when the sun reaches approximately 12 billion years old, it will have shuffled off its envelope, and it will become about a 0.55.6 solar mass white dwarf. What will become of that? Well, it has no source of energy. There's no fusion going on. It's not collapsing anymore, so it can't tap gravitational energy from Kelvin-Helmholtz. All it has is the heat that it has left inside. Since it is hotter than space, it radiates away energy. As it radiates away energy, it cools. As it cools, its luminosity goes like its temperature to the fourth power times its radius squared. Well, its radius ain't changing because it's stabilized, so it begins to fade as its temperature drops to the fourth power. So they fade out very, very slowly over time as they slowly leak heat into space. They're spheres, they're very efficient radiators. They radiate essentially as black bodies. Now it's slightly modified by the fact that there's a skin, thin skin of high, hot gas on top of them, but you would go from 100,000 degrees Kelvin when you first get emerge from the planetary nebula, tossing off tons of ultraviolet light that goes into lighting up the nebula, when the temperature drops below 30,000 degrees, the amount of ultraviolet light shuts down. There's no longer any UV light to fluoresce the nebula, and so the nebula fades out as it spreads away. Then it goes to 5,000. The oldest, coldest white dwarfs we see have temperatures of about 5,000 degrees Kelvin. Just to mention as an aside, that actually allows us to get an approximate age for the population of white dwarfs. Look for the coldest white dwarf and some model for how they cool, and you can predict roughly how old was the parent population of that. It's a way of age dating the population of stars in our galaxy. We're going to see that later on in the class when we talk about the Milky Way. Now, the ultimate state of a white dwarf, the ultimate endpoint, is something unfortunately called a black dwarf. It really should be called a cold dwarf, but they call it a black dwarf. That's confusing because it sounds to a lot of people like black hole. It's not a black hole. It's a black dwarf. It's basically an old, extremely cold white dwarf. If you compute, how long would it take for the temperature of the white dwarf to become as cold as space itself? When it becomes as cold as space, it stops radiating. It stops radiating because you only radiate when you're hotter than your surroundings. So how long does it take a, a, a white dwarf to come into equilibrium with the cold of space? And the answer turns out to be about 10 trillion years. So the universe, we think, is about 13, 13 and a half billion years old. This means that the universe is not old enough for black dwarfs to exist. This is a projected end state. There's no energy, and so I like to use the barbecue analogy. You've got a fire going in the barbecue. The barbecue grill runs down. You're using briquettes, not a gas grill. Pull out one of those briquettes, set it out onto a rock. What does it do? It no longer is burning because it's burning up carbon with oxygen oxidation. 
So it just slowly fades away and cools until it becomes the same temperature as the air around you. That's its cooling time. And it cools and fades. How does it cool? It cools primarily by a combination of radiation and convection with the air. In space, there's no gas, so the primary form of cooling is radiative cooling. It just cools out, and because luminosity goes like temperature of the fourth, it just fades away. So the galaxy is not old enough for there to be black dwarfs. We project that these things should exist, and in the distant future of the universe, we expect to find such things. So these are called black dwarfs. Don't confuse them, please, with black holes. That's a different beast we'll talk about tomorrow. Now, I said that if the mass gets above the Chandrasekhar mass, 1.4 times the mass of the sun, the electron degeneracy pressure is no longer sufficient for to hold it up. Well, let's just play the experiment. What would happen if I sort of dribbled a little mass onto a one solar mass white dwarf, brought it up to 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, and then I add that little bit of straw that breaks the camel's back. Boom, it's over the Chandrasekhar mass. What's going to happen? Well, what happens is electron degeneracy pressure fails, and this object begins to collapse under its own weight because now gravity is bigger than pressure. Gravity wins. As the star collapses, it's collapsing carbon and oxygen. The carbon and oxygen nuclei are getting pushed closer and closer together, and even though it's not technically hot enough for fusion to occur, the other pole of fusion is get the nuclei close together. One way to get them close together is put them into a degenerate situation at extremely high density. When that happens, all of a sudden, carbon-oxygen and oxygen fusion begins to kick into play. Oh, damn, I've got a source of heat. No problem. Heat up a gas, the pressure goes up and takes it off, right? Wrong. This is a form of pressure where more heat doesn't do squat to the pressure. So the heat goes up, making fusion, but the heat doesn't lead to, to change of pressure. So the star keeps collapsing. More fusion leads to more heat. More heat just leads to more fusion, which leads to more heat, which leads to more fusion, and wham! You get a thermonuclear runaway. This thermonuclear runaway takes carbon and oxygen, fuses all the light elements all the way up the periodic table into the iron group. The energy liberated simply heats the star until finally the whole star basically detonates. And the collapsing white dwarf just explodes as a massive thermonuclear fusion ball of iron and nickel. You take 1.4 solar masses of carbon and oxygen and you convert it into iron and nickel explosively. The explosion causes the entire star to simply detonate and disrupt, spreading 1.4 solar masses of iron nickel into the surrounding material. We call this object a Type 1A supernova. Now this name Type 1A is a sort of has a hint of history in it. It's before people understood what supernovae were. They classified them according to the appearance of their spectra. Type 1 supernovae did not have hydrogen lines in the spectrum. An exploding white dwarf has no more hydrogen because its envelope is gone. So when it detonates, it produces an expanding nebula full of metals, silicon, iron, but no hydrogen. The other type of supernova was those with strong hydrogen lines. They called them, well, if you've got type 1, it's called type 2. The exploding massive stars that I described yesterday are technically known as type 2 supernovae. So there's two different types of supernova explosions in the universe. Supernovae of type 2, which are exploding massive stars that seed the universe with heavy elements and oxygen and carbon and nitrogen, all that good stuff. And white dwarfs, the other supernova, which are detonating white dwarfs. They exist. How do I push matter onto a white dwarf? 
put it in a binary system and slowly leak matter over from the companion as the companion evolves. We, in fact, see type 1a supernovae throughout the universe. We're going to see them come up again when we talk about the cosmology, the science of the universe, because these things turn out to be very close to what we call a standard candle. It's going to be a very powerful method for measuring distances because they all have approximately the same brightness when they detonate because they all detonated about the same mass, we think. This is just one model for type 1a's, but it's an interesting one. So what happens if you tip a white dwarf over the edge? It detonates as a type 1a supernova. Now, it leaves behind no remnant. It's a different kind of supernova because I've completely disrupted the white dwarf in the process. Questions about white dwarfs before we go on? <coughs> yes, sir, in the back. How long does it take to detonate? The question was, how long does it take to detonate? Milliseconds. It's just, it's, it's kabam. It's basically a supersonic blast wave goes blowing out through the star. Pretty close. It's a very, very fast explosion. So when it goes, it goes. These things are extremely bright. Yes, sir, back there. Uh, once it's in a gas, is that really even a gas anymore? Yes, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. If it's a generate gas, is it a gas anymore? Let's face it, we're talking about stuff 100,000 times the density of water. That's going to seem awful solid, huh? It turns out that, yes, it's a gas, provided its temperature is above 6,000 degrees Kelvin. You asked a little interesting question, I'll answer. Below 6,000 degrees Kelvin, okay, first of all, how does energy get from the ins hot inside to the outside of the surface of a white dwarf? The answer is conduction. Conduction is so efficient with high-density high electrons that the white dwarf becomes a uniform temperature. It's as hot in the middle as it is on the outside. That's very different than we saw in regular stars, which were super hot in the middle and cold on the outside. That's because it's a degenerate gas rather than a per ideal gas. The other aspect of this is when the temperature drops below 6,000 degrees, the electrons are doing the holding up, but in between them are all the carbon and oxygen nuclei. Below 6,000 degrees, the carbon and oxygen nuclei actually begin to crystallize. So what you end up with is when a white dwarf cools below about 5,000, 6,000 Kelvin, we're not exactly certain where the line is, the white dwarf actually crystallizes and becomes solid. And the solid is filled, the interstices of the solid is filled with these hot electro, these fast-moving electrons, degenerate electrons, that are supporting that crystalline lattice against its own gravity. So it's still a gas, but now the gas is interspersed amongst this crystalline lattice. Is that a weird form of matter? Oh, yeah. That's why people find these things so interesting. One interesting thing about white dwarfs is you can hit them and they ring. And you can learn something about the properties of matter and white dwarfs from this. Neutron stars. Neutron stars are the remnant cores of massive stars. If a star is between 8 and we think 18 times the mass of the sun, it undergoes a core-bound supernova, detonates, blowing off the envelope. But remember, the, the blow-off and the detonation occurred in the layers above the collapsing iron core. That collapsing iron core continues to collapse, its mass is between about 1.2 and 2 times the mass of the sun until it gets matter so close together at nuclear densities that the object basically becomes degenerate in a neutrons. Remember, the protons and electrons are shoved together inside this collapsing core, forming neutrons and neutrinos. The neutrinos stream out, carrying off energy and hastening the collapse. But when the strong nuclear force kicks into play, this thing is practically pure neutrons. It's 99.9% you know, pure neutrons. 
and a neutron degeneracy pressure kicks into play, which can actually stop the collapse of gravity if the mass of the core is between about 1.2 and 2 times the mass of the sun. This occurs at extremely high density. That core has one or two times the mass of the sun, but it's only 10 kilometers in radius. It would fit very neatly inside the Ohio to I-270 beltway. The density of this material is about 10 to the 14 grams per cc. It's basically almost like one gigantic atomic nucleus. And the escape speed from the surface is 70% the speed of light. If we tried to stand on the surface of this thing, we would be squashed into a single one atom layer thick and basically blown away. It's just, they're just sucked right into the system. These things also shine by residual heat. There's no more fusion in these things. They're really hot, millions of degrees Kelvin, but they're really, really tiny, and they simply shine into space. They're super faint. Here's a picture to scale of a neutron star of approximately 1.5 times the mass of the sun. Its diameter is 20 kilometers, radius of about 10 kilometers, which is about the size of a city. Escape speed of 70% the speed of light. And shown to exact scale is the island of Manhattan. To give you some sense of scale, the green rectangle in there is Central Park, which is four kilometers long. So we've taken an object, the mass of the sun, and we've crushed it into something roughly the size of the island of Manhattan. Inside this thing, life is weird. Okay? At densities above 2 times 10 to the 14, the nuclei all melt into their subatomic particles. We get protons and electrons combining into neutrons, and the whole system is basically 100% neutron rich. The surface is actually made of that iron, the collapsing iron core. The iron actually crystallizes into a solid high-density crust. Underneath that crust is an ocean of neutron superfluid, basically a fluid with no viscosity, no stickiness. Below that, we think, are superconducting protons. You actually get a rainout of protons in the middle. And I've drawn the core with a double question mark on it because no one knows what the hell is in the core. This may be things like, you know, wacky hadrons that only exist inside of particle colliders on the Earth. Neutron stars are fascinating for trying to study the extreme properties of matter. I'm going to be hedging a lot of my statements here because we don't know what matter is like in those states. So we're actually, frankly, guessing somewhat as to what the states of nuclear matter are really like. We can't make this stuff in the laboratory. Now, these things were accidentally discovered. People thought they should exist, but thought this was impossible. In 1967, Jocelyn Bell and her thesis advisor, Anthony Hewish, were searching for radio sources in the sky and came across a really strange radio source that pulsed. Regular millisecond-long pulses every second. Bam, 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 bam. They got rid of all terrestrial sources this could possibly be, like you know, car ignitions or things like that. This is 1967, so there weren't cell phones or pagers, which is a big problem nowadays. And when you see a regular repeating pattern of pulses, one of the funny things I thought was, oh, maybe it's little green men. Maybe this is a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization. No, in fact, what they discovered was an object they called a pulsating radio source, or pulsar for short in the, in the astronomy tradition, which turned out to be a rapidly rotating magnetized neutron star. <coughs> For this work, for the actual experimental discovery of pulsars, among other things, Anthony Hewish was awarded the Nobel Prize. Jocelyn Bell, her, his graduate student, was not. Stands as one of the greater injustices of the Nobel Committee. She did much of the work. What is a pulsar? A pulsar is a rapidly spinning magnetized neutron star. I take a neutron star, put a magnetic field around it, and set it to spinning. 
As it spins, you spin in a magnetic field, you generate an electric field, just like a dynamo inside of a hydroelectric plant. The electric field rips the electrons off the surface of the thing and then blasts them out the poles of the magnetic field as a beam of very, very fast near the speed of light particles, which emits a tremendous pulse of everything from radio waves all the way up to gamma rays as it swings around. So this beam is sitting here getting blasted out in two directions, but the system is spinning around and around. And so you get this intense beam of light, which is then swept around your field of view as the neutron star spins very rapidly. You can see this in this movie. Come on. Or not. Oh, be that way. Oh, come now. <sighs> well, that was supposed to be a blinking pulsar. I seem to have a little bit of a PowerPoint malfunction here. This is the Crab Nebula supernova. Deep inside there is a star here, which blinks off and on 33 times a second. It's called the Crab Pulsar. I'm sorry, it should have been a nifty little movie of that. As pulsars spin, age, they spin more slowly. They're losing energy, and so they slowly but surely spin down. So a very, very young pulsar is going to be very, very fast spinning. For example, in the Crab Nebula, and the Vela Nebula, in the Tycho and other supernova remnants, we see a rapidly spinning little neutron star, a rapid little pulsar. But as they age, they're going to get old and cold, and they're going to get really hard to find because as they cool off, the magnetic field fades. As the magnetic field fades, you no longer get the pulsar beams, and they shut off. Here's an example of an old, cold neutron star. It was discovered because it was really hot source with a high proper motion discovered with the Space Telescope. So they're really hard to find. The neutron stars we see in the universe are the young ones. Now what happens if we shove a neutron star over the top? We don't know where this line is. It appears to be between two and three times the mass of the sun, which would be what you would find in the core of an 18 solar mass star. Neutron degeneracy fails, nothing can come into pressure to hold off gravity, and the object collapses in upon itself and becomes a black hole. And we'll talk about those tomorrow. Hmm.